If you're going to do anything that involves, in particular, big high-stake things, selection, if you're going to make a decision on whether you're going to hire somebody or not based on that book or based on that you know, uh, article or TED Talk or whatever it may be, that's going to require me or that should require me to do a deep dive in that evidence. Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time tuning in, I want to take a minute and welcome you into the Kelly family. And I just want to let you know that this show exists specifically for you. So if you're an organizational leader, if you're someone who's thinking about getting into management or you're someone who's even just starting to take their first couple steps in their career and you want to know what do you do as an effective leader, what pain points do you currently have personally, professionally in a team setting, maybe you want to know what some research topics our faculty are working on or you just know of a great individual who make an awesome guest for our show send us an email to ROIPod. That's R-O-I-P-O-D at I-U-P-U-I Again, R-O-I-P-O-D at I-U-P-U-I We live in a world of vast information. We have the multitude of computing power just in the palm of our hand. We have every bit of encyclopedia know-how and every bit of information this world has to offer in the palm of our hand, which can be both a blessing and a curse because with that information comes power, but also with that information comes misinformation comes things that are a little stretch of the truth or maybe have a little bit of enough of a hook of truth in it to make you feel like it's grounded make you feel like it it has some merit to it but yet when you start pulling back the layers you get to see that the foundation of a claim is so shaky it may be on a very very thin layer of bedrock that comes crumbling in so how do we as organizational leaders find what's true? How do we know, you know, this TED talk we listen to and this person makes an incredible claim about something, about leadership, about management, about whatever it may be, yet something in the back of our head saying, are you sure? Like, it doesn't, it, there's something that might be off. How do we know what is true? How do we know when we're about to put hours and hours and hours of work into changing our culture, into changing our own personal habits based off of one quote we read in a book, if that's even worth it, because how do we know that that's specifically true? Well, it doesn't require too much extra work, and it's definitely worth the investment, just like anything we do in leadership when we take risks or when we're doing major overhauls with, with our business or even with ourselves, which is why I'm extremely honored to have this conversation with the Dale M. Coleman Chair in Management for the Kelly School of Business, Ernest O'Boyle. He's been a guest on our show before, and we're just so honored and excited to have you back. Ernest, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Matt. I really appreciate you taking the time to have me back. So let's get into this topic. You know, this has been something I think is really fascinating. It stems to me, I have a personal buy-in on this, just, you know, with my background in journalism and being taught, how do you, how do you start, start disseminating, you know, what's true, what's claimed, uh, what are claims that, that are, do have merit and what are some that are kind of on shaky ground? So, you know, kind of give us some background into, you know, what are we talking about here? What is this, you know, misinformation or um, this idea of finding claims that um, aren't, 
ground are grounded kind of in truth, but just have this kind of griftiness to it. Well, it's it can come in a couple different forms, and we can go down either path or both paths while, while we're here. Uh, when we're talking about an evidence-based claim, uh, we could be getting that from one of two sources. And the first source would actually be wherever the, for example, it was an article. Was the article published in, let's say, an academic journal? Or was this an article that was published in a mainstream media outlet? And so both of those could potentially have some distortion to them. And I do want to stress that uh, really it's not so much an intentional set of behaviors typically. It's more often that the, the, the researcher begins to fool themselves or the person who's interpreting the data tends to fool themselves. And in either case, they might be going at it with the best of intentions. They have no intention to deceive the people. They're so certain of truth that when that truth doesn't emerge out of their findings, they're going to make it. And that's where we get into some of the challenges on either side. Which one would you like me to begin with? Kind of more on the popular press side of it. Some uh, A journalist picks up an article or gets a news briefing from a university or more on the, the actual original production of it. Let's go back to the beginning because I think that's the most healthy and, and most informative place on to the root of, hey, where can this begin? Because I love how you said, and I think that's a very important claim to make that a lot of times this is very unintentional. Like this is not something that someone goes, I'm. how can I deceive so many people and find ways, though there are probably players that do that that's not true in most cases. And so let's go to how do we even begin to build some shaky ground? Like where do these claims that, you know, these popular Ted talks and people base full books on, you know, where does that begin? Uh, start from there. Sure. And the, the scientific process is ideal. There's no better way to discover truth, to investigate matters in my opinion, than the scientific process. Uh, However, the scientific process involves human beings, and that's where things go sideways, unfortunately. Uh, when we're dealing with a, uh, a research project, we often are approaching this as, from something that the, the name is an important, but the hypothetical deductive model, which is just basically we come up with ideas, we come up with hunches, hypotheses. We back them up as much as we can with kind of what other research is out there. And then we go out and we test those hypotheses. So that's where you always hear about deduction, where we start with the general and we're going to now do an actual formal test of this thing. When that happens, on a, on a purely scientific standpoint, it doesn't matter whether you were right or wrong. It doesn't matter whether your hypothesis was supported or not. There's value either way. Unfortunately, though, we prefer to be right. We would much rather it be the case that, you know, all of our, you know, grunt work and writing the introductions of these articles and studying this, you know, past research, that our hunch is correct. Unfortunately, though, when it's not correct, sometimes the, our, our better angels don't prevail in this. And it has a lot to do with our incentive structures in academia. We incentivize people to be right. And as a result of that, sometimes when the data don't share our enthusiasm, people are willing to, researchers are willing to make some non-ideal changes, some unreported changes, either to their original hunch. So I thought it was going to be X, it turned out to be Y, so I might go back and rewrite 
that introduction, that hypothesis. So then now, oh, I'm predicting why. And that's obviously one potential problem in our models. Or it could be that they look at the data and they say, well, you know, on second thought, maybe I should go ahead and add in some additional what we would call control variables. Or maybe I should go in and I'm going to try a new statistical technique rather than the one I was planning to do. And eventually, if you torture these data long enough, they will talk. And that oftentimes happens. But when that gets sent off to a journal, we don't get the full confession tape. What we end up getting is this very idealized and very rose-tinted view of what happened. I went in, I reviewed the literature, I'd formed my hypotheses, I tested them, and they all came out perfect. And that's what ends up getting published. And that can create a lot of confidence that someone has, you know, wow, you know, they, they went 10 for 10 on their predictions. This must be, they must really be on to capital T truth. But if we went back into the process and we looked and said, ah, you know, it turns out actually I, I reversed that hypothesis. Originally I said it was that, now it's this, or this, these two weren't supported. So I just got rid of them. Or after I had a chance to look at the data, I added in a couple new hypotheses because, you know, if I'd spent more time, I would have thought of it anyway. So again, not bad intentions. We're just very, we're very good at fooling ourselves. Well, once that research enters the literature, we treat it as canon law, as truth. And we start to build our own research findings based on our presumption that that was very well-conducted research. We had a full picture of the, the, of the entire process. If that then gets picked up by a popular press outlet or it's something because as an applied researcher, our value, our reason to be has to be that somebody is using our research in practice. This has to help leaders. It has to help managers, CEOs, whatever, and the people that they supervise. So unfortunately, so that's one particular place where things can get a bit distorted and we don't have good base rates of it, but we know it happens fairly often. And we know that when we actually try to replicate these things independently, more often than not, they don't replicate. Mm -hmm. So just from the, from the source material, there's some problems there. And there's some ways to address it and some things that are happening. But that is one area of concern when we're talking about management research. And that's an interesting point because, you know, it's not like people are going in and taking numbers and actually changing numbers. It seems it's kind of one of those things where on the outside it appears, well, what's really, what's the big deal if your hypothesis was wrong and I go back and I change the hypothesis? I mean, the results are the same, but the hypothesis changed. You know, why is that a bad thing? Can you speak on, you know, how that can skew the overall process and how that uh, kind of makes the waters a little murky uh, when it comes to actually published literature. Sure. And we have some very rare instance of true fraudsters, just bad actors in the system. They've been cooking their data since they were a grad student and eventually they got caught or maybe they never got caught. Uh, but we, so those individuals exist. That's not the ones we're talking about though. We're talking about those people that are making slight changes. And the problem is it's the death of a thousand cuts that eventually the, the system starts to, there becomes ways in which you can deliver results no matter what. 
And it's a lot easier to deliver those results in a manner that doesn't require a lot of preparation, um, doesn't require very large sample sizes. If I know I can go into my data and slice a little bit here, make a couple changes over there, I'll eventually get to this, this magical threshold we have in, our, in most uh, scientific disciplines of statistical significance. So whenever you hear the phrase P is less than 0.05, that's what we're referring to. Well. If there's multiple routes to get there, and the hardest way to get there is by using best practices, then that's going to be the road less traveled. And we start to slowly skew the entire field into, the, into this direction and start to get to the point where it's now unclear what is actually supported by science and what is supported by what we call questionable research practices. It's so important, the you know, big part of science is precision, right? And if there's no precision to how the study was conducted, to those sort of findings, then when we go and try to extrapolate and said, we're going to roll out this intervention, or I'm going to introduce this as a selection tool, or here's what we should be training managers to do. If that's wrong, that's not just cost associated with that. Those are people's lots. That's a, that's a very high stakes situation. Somebody either gets a job or doesn't get a job based on something we do then we have a responsibility to be as accurate as humanly possible here. So when we start to muddy the waters, as you say, when we start to get some of this, there's support that is built on strong foundation of science and there's support that's built on the sand of questionable research practices. If we can't distinguish those two things, it encourages leaders to go on their own. It encourages leaders to just say, well, it's all junk anyway, so I'm just gonna go with my gut, which is like the worst predictive tool that you can have is your gut instincts. So it, I think that it has much more sweeping consequences than, oh, it's just decimal dust. Who cares? There's, there's real stakes involved, whether something is supported with good science or supported by non-ideal practices. Yeah. And then how does this then begin? Because to transition into the real world, you know, how does this transition into the TED Talks and those, think le those thought leaders who, you know, make millions of dollars on their books and maybe they're not even fully aware or maybe they are and you know uh, but how does this kind of begin to impact you know when it comes from research based and then how did when that funnels down the line all the way to organizational leaders finding the top 10 best practices you know talk about that process and then how that can impact you know what we're seeing or what we even know as leaders to be true yeah, and it's the telephone game. So it's ultimately what happens. And it's not just going from academic to uh, practitioner in that sense. It starts with the researcher themselves. They're submitting it to a journal. That journal is asking often through the review process, can you tweak this? Can you tell a cleaner story? Which is oftentimes code for drop the non-significant stuff and just stick to your supported results. That then is accepted for publication potentially. And then we might have some press person at the university send out a little blurb. You know, here's let me get a summary of this because no one wants to read your 30 page article. So here's a little summary, a little press release that then gets picked up by somebody else. They twist and turn it a couple other different ways. And then by the time it ends up on, as you say, a TED talk or something like that, it bears very little resemblance to what the research actually showed. And again, through, I, I don't really consider it, uh, I don't think it is, is bad faith investment, but oftentimes the people that are presenting this work and even some of the really well-known names that are out there, they don't have that formal training. 
And I don't think everybody needs to have a PhD or an MD or whatever to give a TED talk or anything like that. But it should be somebody if they're if their talk is evidence based, if the talk is basic, is designed to be like, here's what I think. And the reason why I think it is because science says it is true, then that person needs to have some sort of background to be able to vet evidence. They have to or have they been trained to spot bad science? I don't need them necessarily to be a creator of it, but they should be somebody that can vet it. Uh, do they have a vested interest, you know, in their hot take, this idea, oh, you know, do this new thing and this is really going to change the way that your people view you? Well, is there a book associated with that that you're going to sell me in the second part of this talk? Is, is the idea that you really are trying to, you know, get your consulting business off the ground? So the very first thing I encourage people to do, because you get so much information, as you said at the start, Matt, you get so much information, is actually look at those speaker credentials. And once you've done that, then it, you never dismiss the message just because the messenger, but then you can start to say, okay, well, let me sort the support that they referenced. Let me go back and see, did those original studies come anywhere close to what they're saying here? This is not something you do every day. This is not something that a leader should sit down and just, okay, break out the latest Harvard Business Review and go article by article and vet everything in there. No, this is something where if you think that really resonates with me, and by the way, those are the most dangerous ones, because then your confirmation bias kicks in. As soon as it re resonates with you, oh, that does make a lot of sense. All of a sudden, you're, you can fall into the, the problem of starting to dismiss all the red flags. But going through... Then saying, okay, well, where, where was this published, for example? And is, the, is this a journal that has what's called an impact factor? Meaning this, this was published in a place where researchers are reading it and potentially looking at it and citing it. If it doesn't have any citations, if it's a journal that doesn't have that impact factor, so to speak, it may be perfectly fine research, but it's not a part of the mainstream conversation. And usually that can be a little bit of a red flag. Often those are what are called pay-to-play journals. You send them a check in your manuscript and it gets published the next day or something like that. We don't have really good vetting processes there. So somebody, uh, the, the TED Talk or wherever, the, the blog post that says, you know, here's what science is saying. If it is relying exclusively on science that scientists aren't reading, that's a problem. How do you begin to get into, uh, you know, vetting this out? Because you, what you're saying, it, it, it sounds, it's great. It, it's, it's awesome information. And, you know, we definitely should kind of second guess or take that one extra step to say, all right, let's, let's really ask the questions. Let's really take those next steps. Let's really kind of follow the trail of research to back this claim. But for a lot of organizational leaders, the reason they bought the book is, you know, to kind of cut back on that time so they didn't have to do this research or you know they're like man I, I really don't have that much time in the day like I have so many other meetings that this is just kind of my quick nuggets you know how can organizational leaders um, or those who maybe be in time constraints you know vet the process or vet the information they're hearing uh, without spending an entire week, you know, diving through every journal article and going to the library and, you know, phoning all their research friends and dedicating so much time uh, to make sure that what they want to do. Um, and then when is it appropriate for you to put that extra research time into, uh, into a claim? Great question, because I, I can't say it enough that this is not something that somebody would want to do. You would spend all your time vetting research and none of your time leading people. 
if this was your, you know, we're hiring, that's, that's what an academic does. That is not what a leader does. Uh, so where we're going to, where I would direct their attention to go through a somewhat systematic process. Let me check speaker credentials. Let me see if this science that they're citing actually exists. You know, does the link work from the, the website that they're posting? Is this something I could potentially look at uh, and see that it was published in an actual academic journal? It's when people's lives or livelihoods are at stake. If you're going to do anything that involves, in particular, big high stake things, selection, if you're going to make a decision on whether you're going to hire somebody or not based on that book or based on that you know, uh, article or TED Talk or whatever it may be, then I do think you have an obligation to check it out. Then you should be vetting that a little bit closer because that's somebody's livelihood at stake. And it's also, you know, yeah, it can affect organizational performance, and that's a real important aspect too. But as an HR researcher, I care most about the person and whether they get the job or don't get the job, whether they were right for it or not right for it. So if it had something to do with selection, if it has something to do with how you're going to lead people, you know, oh, this is the key to, you know, uh, people really respect tough bosses. So, you know, always give kind of negative feedback, never give just positive feedback to somebody like that. That's going to affect somebody's satisfaction, their engagement, their commitment, their burnout. I think that if that's something I'm going to potentially be putting you know, a worker through for the next 25 years until they retire or they quit, then I'm going to, that's going to require me or that should require me to do a deep dive in that evidence. So it's ever, whenever there's somebody's real livelihood at stake there. If it's some puff piece, if it's clickbait, if it's just that that sort of thing, yeah, it's fine. You know, smile at your people every morning, and that makes them happy. Well, what's the cost? Is there really a problem? Am I need? Do I need to do a deep dive and find meta analytic findings that smiling does or doesn't work? No. But when it is something where we really are talking about their paychecks, uh, the way that they're going to be able to, when they leave the office, are they going to be in a just a horrible place because of some really bad research telling you to uh, you know, treat your workers one way or the others? That's where I think the deep dive is warranted. That's the point where I would even you know, look at the, the, not just the title of the article, but even look at like the abstract. Is this a big sample? You know, is there is there a few hundred people here or is this, you know, uh, you know, this is what Bill Gates does every morning or, the, you know, what Bezos does every morning. And that's where most of his success came from. Little stuff like that does shouldn't take you long, 15, 20 minutes, maybe. But that can really get you uh, get you in a place where you're making much better business decisions because you're basing it on actual evidence, not somebody else's interpretation of said evidence. And I'd love for you to walk us through an example of this, you know, talk about uh, an example in real world context that uh, when, you know, sounds great, gets you fired up, seems awesome. But yeah, when you kind of take a step back and you start doing some of the research, you can kind of like quickly find, oh, okay, this is starting to be on some shaky ground. There's a, and I'm not going to get into the actual person uh, who put this out there, but there's a very popular TED Talk out there. And the subject of the TED Talk has to do with uh, keeping goals to yourself and that that's a good thing. You shouldn't be telling people that, hey, these are the goals. This is what I'm going to pursue. And when, and it's a very compelling talk and through it, the speaker is saying, check this you know, article out, check these findings out, this person over here. It's so it's it's something that really resonated with a lot of my MBA students, and they sent it to me. And the part of the reason it resonated, they because is they saw what I was teaching, 
which was tell everybody your goals. It's so important. It creates accountability. Tell your boss your goals, your spouse, your, spouse your goals, your dog your, your goals. Tell everybody that you can because it's something that's good. It increases the likelihood of hitting it. And yet there's this very compelling talk out there saying, do the exact opposite of that. What is a student to do in that situation? They shouldn't trust me. I live in an ivory tower. Maybe you know I'm working with really dated information at that point or whatever it may be. But I had them, my students go through this exercise of first, let's see this person's credentials. All right, they're not an academic. They're not a researcher, no big deal. Uh, but have they been trained to spot bad science? And when we looked at their website, there really was, it was an interesting life, but at no point did it involve any sort of training within this discipline. And when you go and you looked at some of the other stuff, you know, and I mentioned something about his personality and I clicked on it, and all of a sudden it's the Myers-Briggs test, which is not a very well-validated test for those that are very strong, psychometrically grounded, sorry, anal retentive like me. Uh, we tend to disparage that test because we don't like personality type indicators for a variety of reasons. Once you kind of start, okay, well, they're, if they're promoting kind of bad science on their website and about themselves, then perhaps they really don't understand it. Do they have a vested interest? Well, this guy had three books coming out that year, which is, first off, that's prolific, three books in a single year, but there was clear vested interest there. Then when we started to look through and say, okay, well, he cites a bunch of academics, a lot of people that you've heard of. And we went through and started sorting that support and said, well, this is an armchair philosopher. This is Freud. So Freud you know, may have been a nice enough person, but he was not a scientist by any stretch of the imagination. When we looked at some of the other work that was doing, it was a lot of unpublished books, a lot of secondary sources. And then when we actually looked at the articles themselves, which granted, this was a much deeper dive than I would expect the typical person to do. What he was citing was not what was found in these articles. He's saying this, these studies prove keeping goals to yourself is a good thing. And then when we looked at those articles, they didn't say that at all, or it was a gross mischaracterization of what was going on there. We went through all this process of it. And at the end of it, we concluded based on also looking at, okay, well, if I just do a Google search and, or a Google Scholar search, is there any research that says I should keep my goals to myself or not? And the vast preponderance around page after page of results, all saying, tell people your goals. That's what you should do. Making it clear that you're, you know, making your goals public is a good thing. Finally, we were able to conclude that, no, we should actually tell people our goals. That's a really annoying, long-winded answer. And that is a, is a reflects an annoying, uh, lengthy process but imagine if your goal was something like, I want to increase productivity of my department by 10% of the coming year. Anything that, or I want to, you know, be a better leader in this domain and that domain, isn't it worth that lengthy, painful process for 30 minutes or even a full hour of your time if it increases the likelihood of actually hitting those goals? So in that situation, I would say, yeah. In other situations, smile at your workers when you come in. Who cares? It's fine. <laughs> And which ultimately leads to be helping you in the long run, because if you were to run down and just take a claim at face value and say, all right, everyone, like going one step further on that example, we're going to increase productivity. So nobody at any meeting at any time, share your goals out loud. You keep them to yourself and that's it. Only to find out in a couple of years, even months or weeks 
productivity actually goes down and we're sitting here scratching our heads as to why I did what the researchers and the experts told me to do, but why is my results not happening? And that's a really good point, Matt, because not only is it bad in that situation, the next time an article comes floating across that leader's desk, are they more or less likely to accept it? Uh, are they more likely to, at that point, to just throw their hands up and say, it's all, it's all bunk. I'm just going to go at my own. I'm going to trust my gut instinct, which is the number one thing for a leader not to do. Uh, but you can see people go down that path, understandably so, mm-hmm. because of really, again, that dual process. Some of the research that appears legitimate is not. And then some of the transmission of the research gets garbled. Mm-hmm. And your signal to noise ratio, by the time it hits your ears, is so off that what's being said in that garbled message has no bearing, has no grounding in the actual scientific research it alleges to be based off of. You know, so finally, as we begin to wrap up this episode, when we do this research, we spend that extra 30 minutes, hour, maybe even a couple hours, because it does impact the lives of those on our team. And we find that, okay, you know what? This sounded great. I was so gung-ho, but it is on shaky ground. You know what? What they claimed is actually not true when I really get into the research. How do organizational leaders protect themselves from just throwing out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, and say, you know what, it's kind of this, what you were alluding to. It's all bunk. It's all junk. You know, what they say is not true. I mean, there, there could be some truth in there. So how do we protect from like totally not just shutting everything out? Yeah. And that's, it's so easy to get, uh, to go from skeptic to cynic. And that's the, and we don't want that. Uh, where to, you know, when I do research on these sort of topics, uh, you know, questionable research practices, I don't want to engage in muckraking, where the idea is to just completely discredit the profession or anything like that. Uh, what I would recommend in this situation, when we are trying to get to at least where the science is, and I'll steer clear of truth. Uh, because it's just where kind of where our probability models are pointing at that particular time. I think there's a couple things that can be done. One, are you seeing this across multiple platforms? Is it something where you're you're actually, yeah, okay, there's that TED talk, and then also kind of have this corroborating information from this other place where I can follow a link or two, uh, that uh, just in, in, in the very quick kind of appraisal level, is this such a novel claim that it's never been stated anywhere else? Because we have a fascination with novelty. We always say, I mean, that's just kind of a human type thing. So oftentimes that novel finding is going to be the one that people can really cling to because it's interesting. It's counterintuitive. When we tell people that, you know, increase your workers' engagement and they perform better, people like, yeah. I kind of figured that one, but that's an important finding to actually be able to demonstrate that there are linkages and tie dollar values to it. Uh, so I would say that there are a couple paths you can go is when you're looking at the article and it's something that is kind of novel, it has kind of a clickbaity title to it. That's and then and then the last thing is it resonates with you. If it kind of goes through all those three things, no, that's probably the most susceptible as you're at, you're going to get that it's novel, I like what I'm hearing, and it has a flashy title, it's easy to digest this material, that's the most likely opportunity to go down the wrong path. So in the situation we really want to, whenever we're excited about a finding, that's when we we should bring our most critical eye to it. And again, not everything, but when you do find one of those that does check a lot of those boxes to say, all right, let me just poke around a little bit longer. In worst 
case because obviously you know professors are long-winded. You're you're listening to me. Uh, worst case, send an email to the authors just to say, hey, you know, is is it true that keeping your goals to your that you know in your research that keeping your goals to yourself? Chances are, what they're going to come back is say, I didn't really say that. Here's what here's a you know a layperson explanation of it. And in general, this is where the research is pointed to. So that's obviously, you know, you got days that can take a couple of days to do that. So you'd only want to do it with something major, but you shouldn't ever get to the point of being cynical. It's perfectly good. In fact, it's encouraged to be skeptical. You should always kick the tires of something that's going to affect you or your people or your organization. But don't go down the path of just saying, you know, oh, I can't trust any science. It's, uh, you know, all these social scientists do is they take uh, common sense things and put them in terms nobody understands. It's not accurate. We, there really are things, there's, there's value to what we do, but it should not be something that you take secondary sources as truth. And it should be something that when it is, even from that original source, you still vet it. You still kind of look at it with that skeptical eye. Again, Ernest O'Boyle, Dale M. Coleman, Chair in Management for the Kelly School of Business. We're so honored to have you as our guest again and look forward to our future conversations with you. Well, thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure speaking with you today. This has been another episode of the ROI Podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.